Please have that passage open in front of you in 1 John chapter 4 and uh, verses 7 to 11 in particular. And as I said, the question this morning is, what does real love look like? How do we define love? Is it defined by Hollywood or the media or the songs that we hear on the radio? Well, I would say no. It is defined by God. God is love. And really the main thing that I want you to grasp this morning is that God shows the perfection and the beauty of his love through sending Jesus. That's it. That's the key thing that we're looking at this morning. And as I said, this sets the scene really for what we have in front of us in the coming weeks as we look at this whole matter of the love of God, the love of the believer, and love in our relationships. And so to set the scene for that, in this letter, John, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of love, what real love looks like, and we we have it in the most amazing terms because love is explained in terms of God, in terms of the Trinity. And it's a stunning truth. And yet really the fullness of the Trinity is beyond our full understanding. And yet even still it is essential in the Bible, and this is how God has revealed himself to us. One God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible doesn't present three gods, but it does tell us that God is three persons in one essence. And the divine essence subsists wholly, indivisibly, simultaneously, eternally in the three members of the one Godhead. Now, the scriptures are clear that these three persons together are one. They are only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In John 10, verse 30, it explains that the Father and the Son are one. When Jesus says, I and my Father are one. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 shows that the Father and the Spirit are one. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Romans 8, verse 9 makes it clear that the Son and the Spirit are one. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. John 14, 23 demonstrates the oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So according to the Bible, God is one God, not three separate gods, but that one God is a trinity of persons. Now sometimes for those who say, oh, well, you know, that word trinity isn't in the Bible. It's a man-made idea. But it's there throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the doctrine of the trinity is implied in, in a number of ways. For example, the title for God, Elohim, is a plural noun which suggests multiplicity. There are passages where God's name is applied to more than one person in the same text. You could see that in Psalm 110. There are also passages which show all three of the divine persons at work together. I love Isaiah 48, 16, which shows this. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From that time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. So, Father, Son, and Spirit evident in that verse. 
And the New Testament is even more explicit. When Jesus gave instruction about the Great Commission to go into all the world and to make disciples and to baptize them, you know, in whose name were they to be baptized? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or that lovely benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Same emphasis. And then there are examples in the New Testament of these distinct persons of the Trinity acting together. It's really important that you understand they're not just modes or manifestations of God who sometimes act as Father, sometimes act as Son, or sometimes act as Spirit. No, they are distinct persons all existing together. And you see that when Jesus was baptized. That you have the Son of God and you also have the Father speaking from heaven to say that he's well pleased with his Son. And then also you've got the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. They are together, one God, distinct persons, but acting together. The Lord Jesus, when he prayed to the Father, promised that he as the Son would ask the Father to send the Spirit. He asked the Father to glorify him. It would make no sense unless there are these distinct persons. In John's gospel, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would abide in the believer, that the Son would abide in the believer, and that the Father would abide in the believer. You can read that in John 14. Distinct persons. And so there is only one God, and he exists, he has done, he does, and he will do eternally as a trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we may not understand it fully, but if we are believers, we believe it, we affirm it, because it's what the Bible teaches. And if we deny it, if we twist it, if we try to modify it, we deny the very nature of God himself, as God has revealed himself. And you say, well, why has that got anything to do with true love? Well, a right biblical understanding of God, of the Trinity, has massive implications, not only for the way the believer thinks about God, but also the way that the believer relates to God, and how that then impacts their relationships with others. Because the Trinity explains God as a relational being. From eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed the, the fullness of those interpersonal relationships. There is such a stunning beauty and glory in the infinite, unhindered closeness that they share together. One puts it like this, from all eternity before creation, the one reality that has always existed is God. It is hard for us to think about God having absolutely no beginning and just being there forever and ever. Without anything or anyone making him be there, just absolute reality that everyone has to reckon with whether we like it or not. But this ever-living God has not been alone. He's not been a solitary center of consciousness. There has always been another who has been one with God in essence and glory and yet distinct in personhood so that they've had a personal relationship for all eternity. So God in these three persons has this wonderful interpersonal relationship. God is a relational being. And from that perfect state, there is a sovereign desire for fellowship with his creatures. And so when God created 
when he created people, he created them as relational beings. People are made in the image of God, and so there's self-awareness, there's the ability to think, to reason, to appreciate beauty, to grow in wisdom, to be moved by emotion, to have some sense of morality. But we are most like God when we love others. And the believer's loving relationship to God should flow to those around him. And when this is displayed, it is a, a shadow, it is a reflection of that perfect love which exists in the Godhead. And we have to start here, friends, because this is the way that John brings this whole matter of true love to us. He does it through a Godward perspective, a Trinitarian perspective. You see, the New Testament mentions different types of love, but the greatest love is what God gives to us when we're saved. Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Now, you need to be clear, it's not just some vague type of mystical experience. Also, it's not just sentimentality. It is God's love poured into us in salvation, and then that love shows itself in the life of the believer as God works in them. 1 John 2, verse 5, Whoever keeps his word, Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. You know, we're going to see that tonight as well, that obedience is a mark of that love. And in this letter that John has written, he's already spoken of love being the proof of true fellowship in chapter 2. He's already said that love is a clear evidence that a person has been born again, given new life by God's grace, and is a child of God in chapter 3. And here he says that love is so vital in the believer's life, it is a key evidence of grace that God really is at work in you. And so to emphasize the importance of this, he draws out the love in the Trinity in verses 7 to 11. And so look at this with me for a moment, this perfect love in the character of God. You know, one of the most glorious statements in the whole of the Bible is found here, God is love. You know, no doubt you've heard it quoted many times. But what is often missed is that it comes in the context of that need for the believer to love other believers. God is love. Loving one another is one of the greatest tests of our profession to love and follow Jesus. You know, it's possible for a person to be absolutely correct and yet not be a Christian. It is possible for men and women to give, you know, total sort of intellectual agreement to the propositions that are found in the Bible. It's possible for them to have an interest in theology and to say that their theology is better than someone else's, to defend and argue, and yet be utterly devoid of the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's a terrible thought and a terrible possibility, but it's a fact. And there have been men who have been clearly, perfectly, you know, well-read and understanding champions of a certain theological position, yet they have denied that very faith in the bitterness with which sometimes they have defended it. The test of orthodoxy, whilst vital and essential, as one says, is not enough. Love is key. And John speaks with such a, a warmth and compassion as he addresses the audience, and he says, Beloved... Beloved, you need to love one another. 
And it's not superficial, it's not just emotional, earthly type love. This love sacrifices. It costs to love like this. It loves the unlovely. Hebrews 6 verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. He said, well, why are believers to do this? Well, John says that this love, this supernatural love is from God. You know, the Bible says God is life. The Bible says God is light. But he's also love. He is love. It is his very essence. And so if a believer has this life, if he walks in the light of righteousness and truth, they will also possess and show this love because everyone who loves like this is born of God and knows God. They've been made new. They've been given a new nature, partakers of the divine nature. And showing this, they will reflect his love to others. And it's not an earthly love. It is given by God to his people. And to show this love, you have to know God. You have to be born again. Grace has to be working your life. And that saving work then shows itself, and you are marked out by love, and the capacity to love is given to you, as we'll see later. And John is so clear. He makes it so simple. There is a great contrast. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God. If a person's life is not marked by spiritual love for others, then it casts their profession into question. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us that amazing description of how true Christian love shows itself. It won't be puffed up with pride. It won't be easily provoked. It won't think evil or rejoice in evil about others. It hopes for all things, hopes for the best for others. Only Jesus loved like that. And only his life in me and his work through me can make me love like that. And you know, when I am confronted with those standards in the Bible, when I hear that, I am exposed. Because I'm brought again to see how far I fall short in truly loving others. You know, sometimes we find it easy to love those that we like. But what about those who irritate us? You know, as we irritate others. John is saying that we should be patient and sympathetic and understanding and willing to help and to bear with one another, to not be antagonistic. And friends, that seems to be devoid in so many churches today. We should desire for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters that they know the glory and joy of living the Christian life. And so we should be in prayer for each other, to love each other, to bear with each other. It is a real thing. And it just doesn't happen either on Sunday morning. It happens 24-7. God's nature is love. He defines love. It does not define him. You know, friends, we mustn't fall into the trap of trying to define God's love with our own human limitations imposed upon him. God's love is glorious, and it helps us to understand so much in terms of the biblical view of life and of the world. You know, when you look and you ask the question, well, why did God create? Well, in eternity past, in that perfect Trinitarian relationship, God the Father gave as a love gift to his Son a people who would be redeemed, who would glorify and honor the Son. And even though God existed in that perfect state, he created people out of which he would love and redeem those who would love him forever. 
You say, well, what about things like providence? Well, God overrules in the circumstances of life, in all of the wonder and beauty and even difficulty to demonstrate his love. What about salvation? Well, if, if God was only to uphold his law and that would be it, we would be condemned. We'd have no hope and everyone would face eternity in hell. Yet because he loved us, he has provided a remedy, a pardon through the saving work of Jesus Christ for those who believe, who will cast themselves on his mercy. We also see that God's love shows itself generally to all men in, in many ways. He expresses his love and goodness through what we call common grace. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. He delays his final judgment out of compassion for sinners. He shows his love in the repeated warnings to sinners to be saved. He finds no pleasure in the condemnation of the sinner. God extends his love to every part of the world through the, the general proclamation of the gospel. As men everywhere are called to repent and believe in Jesus, he sends his message and his messengers to preach this glorious news across the world. But when that message comes to a person in spirit and in power, and when God takes hold of them, and the Spirit of God makes them alive and gives them those gifts of repentance and faith, then they come to know this special, perfect, eternal love that God lavishes upon his children. John 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the full extent of his love. Ephesians 2, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's a stunning thing. The love that God lavishes upon those whom he saves. And John is making it so clear, the evidence of that life, the evidence of God's work, is not just believing the truth and defending the truth, as essential as that is, but it demonstrates the reality of that truth at work in you. Love displayed. And being a Christian, being saved, means that God has saved you by changing you, by giving a new nature, a divine nature, and this works out in this supernatural love that natural man is incapable of. The only people who can love as God loves are those who have received his nature. If the Lord's people can't show this love, then, friend, the world has no hope. One explains this is a desperately serious matter. There are people who are unloving, unkind, always criticizing, whispering, backbiting, pleased when they hear something against another Christian, and my heart grieves. It grieves to them as I think of them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming that they are not born of God. They're outside the life of God. God is love, and if I say I'm born of God and the nature of God is in me, there must be some of this love in me. So the question for me and for you is this, is it in me? Is it in you? Do we really pray for people, even those that we struggle with? Do we know that sense of compassion and pity for others? Are we quick 
to forgive and to say sorry? Are we ready to forgive and make things right when maybe we've messed up and things have gone wrong? That is what love does. That is what reflects this love which John is speaking of. And he said this love is the love of God and is reflected in the life of the believer. This perfect love. But then as we draw to a finish, this perfect love is most demonstrated in the coming of Jesus. If you want to see more of what this love is like, then you look at the coming of the Son of God. John doesn't just say that God is love, but because of the other things that follow, we, we need for what he brings next to grip our hearts. The great and beautiful vision of the love of God. I wonder this morning as you've come, does your heart yearn to know God? To love him? To walk with him? To know more of his love? And John is absolutely sure that if we encounter the love of God in Christ, we will definitely love one another. And he does this by bringing us again to see the greatest demonstration of the love of God in the coming of the Savior. He brings us back to the Lord Jesus and to the cross of Christ. How do I know that God is love? Why can I say to you that God is a God of love? How can I say to you that God loves you enough to forgive your sin? Well, the overwhelming emphasis of the Bible is that the love of God is to be seen finally and to know truly when we gaze upon the glory and the wonder of what God has done for us and in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the scriptures, they point to this from beginning to end. We can only begin to fathom and appreciate the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how does this happen? What does it look like in my life? Well, God begins by taking you, by taking me to the depths of myself. We can never appreciate the love of God in Christ until it exposes the reality of who we are. You know, does God love me because I'm worthy and because I'm lovely and because I deserve favor? No, because I'm not any of those things. The Bible says that I'm dead in sin. The Bible says that I'm in bondage to the enemy, that I'm a slave to sin, that I am dead to God, that I'm dead to all that is truly God, good, that I am at enmity with God. And not only that, but in our natural state, we hate God. We have no thought of him. We have no thought to love him. We rebel against him. We resent him. We don't love him. And how we really are is brought to light. And maybe we've all felt it at some point before we knew the Lord. When things go wrong, we hate God. How could God allow this to me? And we blame him. You know, we like to live without any reference to him. But when things go wrong, we put all the blame on him. And we deserve punishment. We deserve his wrath. And that's the Bible's assessment of who we are. And we have to see this before we can encounter something of the glory and the vastness and the beauty and the splendor of God's love. And these things should convict us. We, we see our sin. See the holiness of God. We see our sin and it leaves us in despair. But then John brings us to show us God again and shows us what he has done and that God has sent his son in the heart of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the son of God, God's only unique son who came to earth in flesh. That God should send him. He was sent. 
And by the way, that tells us that he existed eternally. Before the world, he came, he was sent from heaven, he took to himself human flesh. His birth at Bethlehem wasn't the beginning for him. God sent his son from the glory of heaven with all of its eternal bliss and perfection to this fallen world. And he asked him, his only son, to come and to save sinners. That is love. You know, as a father, I think of the love that I have for my children. And then to multiply that to infinity. And that is God the Father's love to God the Son. And yet, he sent him to die for sinners like you and me. And you cannot know the love of God unless you believe that Jesus came, the real coming of the Son of God. Jesus, the God-man, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him. Fully God, fully man. And God sent his son into this world of selfishness and turmoil. What love? You think on his birth from the splendor of heaven and he came and there was no room for him. You think of the selfishness of mankind was such that a woman in such need about to give birth was put into a stable. The Lord of glory born in a manger. That's the sort of world that he was born into. And you remember Herod's paranoia and his deception, the bloodshed of the firstborn just to try and keep his throne. All the malice and the hatred and the envy. And our Lord Jesus, born into a poor home, he lived the ordinary life of a carpenter. Can you imagine what it must have been for the eternal Son of God to see sin, even though himself would indeed be sinless? To look at the horror of evil at work in the world around him. The shame, the foulness. This is the love of God. How could he come from such beauty and perfection and purity and live in a world like this? How could he have done it? He loved us. And then you think of his ministry and his teaching, his loving, holy doctrine, truth. See the way that people opposed him and tried to expose him and challenge him and pull him down, seize him and kill him, trying to show their own cleverness. And see the deceit and the plotting and the treachery, even one that he called friend. And then look at how he was deserted by his disciples and put on trial and mocked and beaten and a a crown of thorns rammed upon his brow. This is the world to which he came. In this was manifested the love of God, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. But more, he sent him to be the propitiation for our sin. What does this mean? Brings us to the cross, dear friends. It means that God sent Jesus with that specific mission of going to the cross for sinners like you and me. That God was willing to make him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It means that Jesus Christ came and he was not only priest, but he was the offering. He was the sacrifice. He was the propitiation. He was the lamb without blemish. He gave himself. And God sent him into the world in order that he might punish the sins of all who trust in Jesus in him. He made his son a sacrifice, the substitute who would stand in the place of the sinner. And that's why in the garden he prayed and he sweat drops of blood. He knew what lay ahead. 
It involved that separation from the face of his father, the darkness of the cross when he was there, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There we see the love of God, not only in the world that he came into, but in the sacrifice of himself, the substitutionary death so that we might be delivered. This is perfect love manifested that God sent his only son to the cruel shame and agony of the cross to be made sin for all who would trust in him who himself knew no sin and was innocent. But praise God, that was not the end. And God raised him up again, vindicating the Savior, accepting the sacrifice, the law satisfied, all was complete. And we don't know the love of God unless we see that if Christ had not died on the cross, if he had not shed his blood, God could not forgive sin. And so Christ died, he was made the propitiation for his sin. By his death, we are reconciled to God. We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. When we believe in Jesus, we are pardoned. We are restored. We are brought into that right relationship with God. And as he rose again, because he lives, we live also. That resurrection power at work in us. And we receive eternal life through him. We're given his nature, his power. He abides in us and we in him. We live through him. That's what God has done for us. And we live as citizens of another land. We're heading to a glory that is to come. And why did God do this? What led him to do it? Not that we loved him, but he loved us. It's all of him. It's nothing in us, just him. And friends, as I think on these things again, and maybe you as well, I cannot grasp why so often my heart is so hard. How can I be faced with these things? this fathomless love and not be lost in love and adoration to a great God? How can I not be broken? How can I do anything but love my brothers and sisters, blood-bought people? How can I face these things and not feel ashamed of my apathetic living and not be moved to give all that I have for this one who gave all for me. Why is my heart so hard? And I cry out to the Lord that he might inflame my heart again, kindle that spark. And I pray that he would do it for you too. That we would resolve together to dwell more and more upon his love, true love, perfect love. To see myself as I am, but then to see the amazing reality of the love of God. To see what he's done and to pray that God will break our hearts. To feel more and know more of that love and his presence. And for that to be shown in the way that we are with each other. Do you know there's nothing else in the world like that. To know him, this love which is so amazing, so divine. It demands, you know the rest my soul, my life, my all. May it be, dear friends, that we are gripped by this love. And as we are gripped by the love of God displayed in the coming of Jesus and his saving work, that we would show that love towards others. That it might cause those around us to say,
How do they love like that? And then we'll be able to say, it's not us. It's him. And what is more, you can know him too. And you can know that love for yourself. May God be at work in us. Amen.